Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, Washington Commentary Columnist, AEI Scholar, founder of the Free Beacon, and author of the forthcoming History of Conservatism in America, The Right, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. So uh, Matt uh, humiliated me last night because uh, while I was uh, busily punching out uh, my column for the New York Post as an insta reaction to the Biden State of the Union and very proud of myself for having finished it about half an hour after the speech, I, I sent it to my editor. I like rubbed my hands in pride and then I opened the free beacon and there is Matt's Insta response already published. Uh, you the internet like age, John. You have to be first. You know, my powers of prognostication first. allowed me to peer into the future and see what Biden was going to say. And so it just kind of the piece kind of wrote itself. You know, of course, I missed uh, I miss all the visuals now of the State of the Union when I watch it and decide to comment on it because I'm too busy writing. So I had my right. wife next to me saying, oh, look at her. Oh, look at that dress or <laughs> Kamala shouldn't be wearing that, you know, uh, but I don't see any of it. So I just have to rely on. on OK, so we do have we do have two uh, immortal uh, gifts, memes, whatever that came out of this. One was Chuck Schumer jumping to his feet to applaud to applaud the incredible successes of the um, of the Biden legislative agenda. And I'm not quite sure why he jumped up. A, a, a sentence too early, but he jumped up a sentence too early and then started to applaud and then stopped and just stood there. And then Christine's favorite, which was um, evil Christine. Nancy Pelosi rubbing her yeah. knuckles together in a strange way when hearing about stock prices or something. I don't know. It was it was a Ford. Was it about electric <laughs> Pfizer? Vehicles? I don't know what it was, but it was this, oh, she okay, stood yeah. up rubbing her knuckles. She was together. rubbing her knuckles. It was a uh, it was a very, very uh, strange like, ooh, we're going to get you. Anyway, and Matt's wife is absolutely right. The brown is not Kamala's color. I completely agree with that assessment. OK, the fashion choices were suspect. Yeah. OK, so there were there were a lot of. Uh, and then, of course, this kind of like, oh, shucks, gee, oh, I'm 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 so flabbergasted and uh, near near sort of girlish delight. Uh, Stephen Breyer uh, at being highlighted uh, by the president. That's also was kind of a very, very odd piece of personal uh, conduct someone uh, made the great comment uh on twitter that he looked like the person who knows the surprise party is going to happen but has to fake surprise anyway when uh, everyone jumps right, out yeah. from the shadows and so he was kind of you know mincing overdoing it bow. yeah overdoing yeah. it yeah great. right yeah okay so matt really quickly so uh you didn't like the speech now let, let's let's try to divorce d- divorce this if we can from our natural uh ideological antipathy toward biden and his agenda uh, which he, I mean, which fair is fair. It's hard to do. And, you know, you're not going to like a speech that uh, basically stands for everything you don't stand for. But nonetheless, uh, give us your quick, uh, quick. Take. Well, look, my, my take was uh, that Biden continues to give no sign um, that he's aware of how big a political problem he has on his hands. And if you listen to this speech, it was uh, some unifying notes at the beginning and at the end 
but the bulk of the hour-long speech was spent basically rehashing everything that he has failed to pass uh, over the last year. And um, though the words build back better never crossed his lips, he kept talking about building a better America. <laughs> you know, I'm on it. I, I get it. I get what he's trying to telegraph there. And the policies were the same. Um, so for Biden to turn things around, he's now, he's now under 40% in uh, the most recent round of approval ratings. He, uh, the Republicans are enjoying a large advantage in the generic congressional ballot, which is something they've only done um, in, during years where there's a big red wave. Um, Biden would have to change some of his policies. He would have to strike a new chord, abandon uh, Build Back Better or Build a Better America, which is not going to go anywhere, try to move to the center, um, try to be serious about inflation. Uh, he was none of those things. And so I think it was a huge missed opportunity. And I'll say, I don't think it's just our ideological uh, priors that is leading us to that conclusion, John, because David Axelrod, you know, who before the State of the Union published an op-ed in the New York Times saying, time to be humble, Mr. President, and basically giving Biden advice, advice from, you know, Obama's former top political advisor, uh, you know, uh, a pretty sharp guy. David Axelrod. Axelrod was disappointed in the speech as well last night. Right. Well, uh, David I just, Axelrod want, I just want to add one detail to Matt's uh, bill of particulars because I looked this up last night. On March 1st, 2018, exact analog to March 1st, 2022, Donald Trump's uh, um, you know, poll average of approval was 41.2 and yesterday, March 1st, 2022, Joe Biden's was 40.6. So he is not only in bad, he is worse off today than Donald Trump was in 2018. And Trump, of course, had been through Charlottesville. Biden's been, Biden went through Afghanistan, uh, far worse than Charlottesville, in fact and maybe with a far more lingering after effect than Charlottesville. But um, uh, that, 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 is the, that is the depth of the hole that he's in. Uh, he is now worse off than a president who lost 40 seats in the House in 2018 and lost the presidency in 2020. No, I'm sorry I interrupted you. No problem. Axelrod was on CNN <laughs> immediately after the speech, and his reaction to it was that he said that Joe Biden had given it, and I'm quoting, a Churchillian speech that was more church than chill. I'm sure that sounded brilliant in his head. It's ponderous. It makes no sense. It's not clever or interesting or analytical, um, but it was a soundbite. So congratulations. Uh, and nevertheless, well, though, it I does think actually... what he meant by it, because then I also heard him on his podcast, Hacks on Tap, with uh, Robert Gibbs and, uh, and Mike Murphy. And I think the idea was that he was genuflecting at the Democratic, at the liberal Democratic altar, um, that was the church that he was he was being a faithful, um, you know, uh, he was a faithful member of the congregation to 
And uh, the chill part, I, I don't know. But yeah, that's profoundly really generous uh, on your part. He should send you I'm, flowers. You know me. I am the soul of general. I'm famous for my generosity. But the invocation of Churchill uh, demonstrates what I think all of us probably think and what we should get into first, probably, which is the first 10 minutes of the speech, which were all about Afghanistan or Afghanistan or uh, Ukraine. And <clears throat> to be similarly generous, I didn't think it was horrific. I thought it was resolute. <laughs> Uh, I thought it was resolute. Uh, I thought it was galvanizing. Um, I don't think it set expectations too high. Um, my fellow commentary podcasters might disagree with that assessment. And it's form it, foremost, it's the most uh, memorable part of the speech. If anything is remembered from the speech a week from today, it will be the first 10 minutes because the next 60 minutes were a perfect illustration of why this presidency is on a trajectory to failure. Abe, um, so let, let, let's talk about the first 10 minutes. So um, uh, he paid uh, tribute to the extraordinary bravery of the Ukrainian people. He pointed out that Putin's miscalculation was he didn't he thought he was just going to roll uh, roll up um, Ukraine and the Ukrainian people wouldn't let him. And we're all sort of in awe of the Ukrainian people. And uh, and uh, he didn't expect that NATO was going to. Um, he thought NATO would collapse and NATO has proved itself strong and we are going to do whatever we can. We will do whatever we have to do, he said, basically, to uh, protect uh, NATO countries if Putin decides to turn west, thereby effectively uh, in, in invoking the fact that he would he would uh, execute Article five should should there be any invasion or or putative invasion of uh, territory uh, under under NATO's um, under NATO's terms. Look, that I said, Abe, you're uh, you're not. Happy. I I I didn't like anything about it, anything, including the first ten minutes, because as, perhaps especially the ten minutes, because to me it was so cheap, um, so at odds, and so contrasting with what's actually going on right now. Of course, you should honor um, the bravery, the courage, the steadfastness of the Ukrainians and, and, and Zelensky. But Biden spoke of it um, in almost triumphal terms, sort of free road off Zelensky and the U Ukrainians' courage here to make some sort of pronouncement of uh, Western victory, when in fact, over the coming days and weeks, it's very possible, more than possible, that Ukrainians are going to face certain slaughter. What are we cheering about? What are we congratulating ourselves for here? And while I completely understand the idea that we shouldn't go in, uh, we shouldn't send any Americans to fight uh, against Putin, I'm not sure who you're reassuring when you keep announcing it. Uh, the country is not really in a panic that we're going to. Uh, in fact, polls show that about half of us, half of the country wants to. You're definitely reassuring Putin every time you say it. If you don't want to go in, don't go in. I get it. I think I, that's a very sound, that's a very sound course. Uh, I'm, I just don't understand why you keep saying it. And, and also the fact that it was 10 minutes. It was this throat clearing. Um, once that was out of the way, then it was build back better, rehash, rebranded. Um, everything about it was cheap to me, including 
the the very fact that the mask requirements were lifted the day before. So this there was this transparent sort of visual stunt to the whole thing. Um, I I just no mention of Afghanistan, by the way, uh, which I think is kind of extraordinary. It was a pretty massive Biden undertaking that that has happened during during the first year of his presidency. Uh, and is, it, is, it, is, it was supposedly the the greatest airlift in history. Strange thing not to, not to tout if, we, if, if we're talking about, uh, you know, the, our, our strength and resolve and, and capability. I, I didn't like any of it. Um, and I think I agree with Noah that the first 10 minutes will be what, what are remembered. I'm not sure how they're going to be remembered in light of what's coming in Ukraine. But that that's such a good point, because the, if there's a subtext to uh, uh, his speech, it was it should have been called the memory hole. Right. So much was memory hold in that speech about his first year. And and even the stuff that he acknowledged finally on it, supposedly, honestly, like inflation was me- the details of how we got here were memory hold. Like Afghanistan was memory hold. All these things that actually are on people's minds, the attempt to address them directly also was a blunder, because, for example, Let's not defund the police. Let's fund the police. But that which is great. I, you know, look, I, I'm applauding that line. That's exactly what he should have been saying uh, two years ago. But he's not talking about crime. That's not really addressing crime. Right. That which is a major concern of Americans right now. So there's just there was a weird elision of what he knows if he's listening to his advisors is important to people and what he actually said. And then when you start drilling down into the details, there were just a lot of missing gaps. And that's in Afghanistan being the most glaring. But there were a lot of those even in the domestic policy agenda. Well. Okay, so let's 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 break a few things down uh, in the in the Afghanistan section. So as, as Abe alluded to, there was this Putin didn't expect the you know the Ukrainians were going to hang firm, and Putin didn't expect that NATO uh, was going to remain resolved, and that's true. But I mean, it had the quality more that we didn't expect it, or that or that you know uh, people doubted here in the United States that NATO was still viable or people doubted that anybody would stand up to a military advance uh, from an invading army. And, um, and, and Biden was kind of uh, delighted, uh, I would say, by his own unexpected success uh, or, or the unexpected resolve shown by NATO. I don't know that it was so much that Putin is surprised as that he and we are a little surprised, um, certainly by the reaction in Europe, this kind of cascading uh, neo-hawkishness or neo-commitment uh, to um, you know, uh, Germany uh, uh, go- going up to 2% of its GDP on defense, uh, you know, b- by voice acclamation uh, in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the parliament, agreeing to 100% billion dollar euro increase in defense spending i mean it, it, it it's kind of staggering and um uh and, and as I, I i mean i think it's more about us than it was about about him and then i think that yeah go ahead i, I just say i think that is factually demonstrably true because if you look at that god-awful biden press conference uh that before putin was on the move before putin invaded during which in the Q&A, 
Biden said, well, it depends what kind of invasion. If it's a small invasion, our NATO allies are going to argue about how to respond. And of course, Putin can do it. He can win. Contrast that with what Biden said last night. He, he, he was absolutely stunned by, by the force with which Putin was met and by the response of the Europeans. Um, I mean, so and let's also talk about what he discussed in terms of policy, okay? So the policies that he mentioned are we're, we're, we're repositioning forces uh, to make sure that NATO is defended and that the, essentially the border of NATO uh, you know, is not breached or that Putin will, will, will not breach our border because Article 5 will be invoked, right? So that's the most important thing that he said in the speech, I think without question in historical terms. But then he said stuff like, you know, we're going to release 30 million barrels from our strategic petroleum reserve. Globally, 60 million. Okay, he said America, right. Uh, 30 countries will release 60 million barrels of oil. We're going to release 30 million. How much is that really? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. And I it's mean, actually is it two days. Is it two days worth of worth of American oh, oil? I think it's more than that. But we're talking about a global okay. marketplace here. Um, right. This is the global a global effort to release strategic reserves. And this is <clears throat> something that um, he really didn't level with the American people on. And I was desperately hoping that he would. And it goes probably goes more towards um, what I think we're going to talk about later on in this uh, in this podcast on inflation. Um, but the <clears throat> response from Europe has been miraculous insofar as they're willing to absorb pain, they're willing to sacrifice comfort to meet this threat. None of us who have been advocating this point of view for 40 years expected this to happen. It's quite unfortunate that the circumstances that merit it uh, created those conditions, but the conditions have been created. Moreover, the West has been terrified to target the energy sector, but they've done that accidentally. Uh, over the last 72 hours, we've witnessed BP, Shell, ExxonMobil, any half a dozen other smaller producers exit the their divest from their Russia holdings. It's going to have a profound impact on the energy sector. They're doing it because we created a very politically volatile condition. You can't do business in Russia anymore. You're not going to get paid. So that's doing this partly. But another condition is just social pressure. It's just an organic reputational fear of doing business with a criminal regime. Uh, I don't think we anticipated that. It's going to create shortages. It's going to uh, hike inflation. It's going to mean prices rise way more than you think they will in the very ne near term. Strategic petroleum reserves are not going to save us from that. And the president didn't level with the public about what's coming. Um, okay, so let's talk about other things that he, that he promised. So um, there's all this, you know, uh, inflicting pain on Russia stuff, right? We're cutting the banks off. Um, we're choking their access to technology. And then, of course, there was this passage tonight. I say to the Russian oligarchs and the corrupt leaders who built billions of dollars off this violent regime, no more. The United States Department of Justice is assembling a dedicated task force to go after the crimes of the Russian oligarchs. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We are coming for your ill-begotten gains. And then, and then he said we were closing American airspace to Russian, uh, you know, commercial flights. Um, uh, okay, so this is the cheap part. Okay, look, uh, uh, somebody emailed me and said, "How exactly are we going to see? You know, like don't like don't we have due process in the United States? You can't, you can't just seize somebody's yacht." 
Um, and in fact, we're not going to. That's why he said that, uh, you know, he was going to convene a task force to sort of try to basically make cases against the Russian oligarchs that would allow for the seizure of their of their uh, Ill, ill-gotten gains. Um, uh, I'm not sure we can do, maybe the Europeans don't have, you know, due process of law and all of that. So some of them can can, can do this. But uh, that's cheap because, in fact, um we're not going to do that. Like we're not, we're we're not going to like tomorrow take Roman Abramovich's yacht. Um, we we don't we don't do that exactly. There needs to be a clear case that a crime was committed and a crime that was is by the way related to the yacht itself. Let's say right. I mean, in other words, like you don't you can't just seize a yacht for you can seize a yacht for non-payment of taxes or because the yacht itself is being used in criminal activity, but you don't just seize it because the guy's a bad guy and got a parking ticket like that. Even so, so there is a very cheap aspect to that. And there, there was a lot of cheapness elsewhere in the speech in policy terms that evoked the same thing. Uh, My favorite being that he was going to convene yet another task force to um, go after companies that uh, made profits off of Essentially, the Payroll Protection Act uh, spending uh, that helped ballast the economy uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Really? Okay. And like profiteering, uh, you're actually going to like, you think that's actually going to please people or people are going to care? I understand that people say no one ever punishes companies for, you know, doing bad things and all that. And that's a big Democratic talking point. But this is something you're going to highlight a chief prosecutor for pandemic fraud. We're going after the criminals who stole billions in relief money meant for small businesses and millions of Americans. Good. Go, go ahead, go do it. Make the cases, uh, you know, um, uh, like, but, you know, highlighting that in the state of the union where you're talking about how the world has changed with that, the, that, the, that, the, we're, we're trying to, we're moving to a new approach on COVID. So what we're going to do is look back and like, try to punish people two years ago for their misbehavior again, cheap, like a cheap applause line, like well, not, not elevated. And, and not only cheap, but uh, hasty. You're, you, when you're talking about these uh, t- task forces, John, I kept having this image of Don Adams and get smart. That's kind of going, you know, going to work, trying to get, uh, get the fraud or get good Roman Abramovich's <laughs> yacht and um, hilarity ensues. But there was a hastiness to the speech. Clearly the, the body of the speech was prepared uh, weeks in advance, months in advance. And if you consider it in that light, you can see how in many ways the speech was intended to continue the argument that Biden began making in January when he made the very partisan attacks on the Republicans, uh, when he was trying to rally his left because he understands it's really only the left now in his corner. And so much of the speech, the, the bulk of the speech was just, it was meaningless because um it was a series of proposals that could not pass last year. And then you have the top of the speech, which was hastily put together to respond to the momentous events in Ukraine. And this is what's concerning, which is that um, we're in this moment now in uh, entering one week since the Russian invasion, where people are kind of uh, just acting frenetically and proposing all these things or committing all these actions without really thinking through the consequences. 
So you've had this long buildup while Putin was assembling his forces surrounding Ukraine. And the big debate was, well, will he or won't he? And many of our friends were all saying, no, don't worry, it's a bluff. You know, um, it will stay, he'll, he'll try to take what he can without resorting to force. Um, Biden was disclosing all this intelligence in an attempt to get him off the game. Maybe the threat of sanctions will deter him. None of that worked. He actually meant it. And he's launched the largest scale military operation in Europe since the end of the Second World War. And we've spent the six days, the last six days, just kind of, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And we're going to close the airspace and we're going to take the yachts and we're going to sanction this. And Exxon and Shell are pulling out and Apple Pay won't work in Russia anymore. Um, all of which is justifiable, I think, uh, when viewed in isolation. But the totality of it, I think, is concerning because it it paints a portrait of a leadership that is um, responding uh, uh, frenetically and uh, hastily to uh, very momentous events. Well, that's, you know, that's interesting. Of course, what he, what he attempted to do was make it clear that we've been spending months slowly, laboriously and methodically assembling this coalition uh, to, fa to, to face Putin down and maybe people are going to buy it. It's clearly, it's not true. Um, what happened was that the events began to outrace our expectations of the events, right? I mean, as you say, uh, people really didn't believe that he was going to go in. And the going in had the shock effect uh, on Europe, or at least on the elites in Europe, not all that dissimilar to September 1st, 1939. It's like they were like, oh boy, you know, we who? Now, everything's different now, all of a sudden, like that, like 9-11 for us or something like, uh, you know, um, a total shift, a, a seismic perspective shift uh, in, instantaneously, which, which, which belies the methodical effort to keep NATO united. And, you know, NATO had to be united uh, because for NATO not to be united instantly in the face of this not only would have been the end of NATO, but it would have been, yeah, I mean, why wouldn't he turn around and take Latvia or Estonia if NATO dithered and, you know, started, you know, everybody went on vacation or something like that? I, I just think it's an interesting perspective that he, uh, you know, Abe says it was cheap. You're saying it's hasty. Um, and, you know, that's the problem here. We were all reeling, Noah particularly yesterday, on our, on our group chat was reeling from a CBS news report that uh, one Pentagon estimation, what was it Noah said that the war would I don't go think it on. was a Pentagon estimate. I think it came from Western intelligence likely. Okay. Britain, I'm sorry. But, uh, right. It was okay. <clears throat> it was pretty bad news. Um, the assertion, the assumption being, and I frankly think this is perhaps a little premature. Nevertheless, but still the, terrifying. The, the assumption being um, that, Kiev will be surrounded in a week. It will fall in 30 days. Tactically, Ukraine will be in Russia's control within four to six weeks. And then the war continues for 10 years, 15, 15 years, years 20 years. No, it's at upwards of 20 years, yeah. ultimately culminating in Russia's loss and withdrawal. But a generation of a broken, failed state on NATO's frontier. Well, and that's um, without the war spreading. Right. right. Yeah. I precisely. Mean, this is not, a, and, this and is not frankly, a static situation. No. And we have not contemplated uh, what that would entail. The notion here that we would simply accept 
a failed state on NATO's frontier and not introduce special forces to stabilize the borders is fanciful. Right. But my point here is there's all this, you know, rah, rah. We love Zelensky. You know, our, our, we are just, we swell with, you know, admiration at the, at the bravery of the Ukrainian people. Well, I mean, we ain't seen nothing yet because this isn't stopping here and they're going to be called upon to be brave, self-sacrificing and, you know, and, um, and it's not just self-sacrificing, like I'm giving up a meal for the homeless once no, a 2, week. 2000 of them have already died. I mean, this is right. not, it's, that, it's much yeah. worse. Yeah. It's very bad. And it's going to get much worse. There's something right. that, that I was thinking about and today. Then what? I was thinking about this today. Yeah. There's reports coming out of um, Eastern Ukraine, uh, Mariupol, which is a city on uh, the Sea of Azov, um, it's a port city, and it's a pretty important strategic objective. It's surrounded. And the mayor of Mariupol, I thought it had fallen yesterday. It had not fallen. And Kherson has not fallen, apparently, but they are their troops are in the Russian troops are, are uh, in the process of taking these cities. And I don't think they'll hold much longer. Um, but the Russian, uh, the mayor of Mariupol said, um, Russia is preventing civilians from leaving. They're, they're not letting civilians evacuate, uh, which is in keeping with Russian doctrine. And the thing is, is that I don't think anybody really expected. We've been shocked that we haven't seen Russia follow much of its doctrine, which is very brutal. But they're beginning to, which is uh, a lot of forward artillery um, and mechanized infantry and pincer movements and captiva- cap- holding civilian populations captive and brutalizing them until they submit. And we haven't seen that kind of war. If you're under 40 years old, you've only seen the West execute a large scale, fast moving mechanized offensive. And it is antiseptic. It is precise. It is conducted with the utmost concern for global opinion and local opinion, because the objective is always to pacify and win hearts and minds and what have you. And we haven't seen the kind of war that a mechanized uh, mobile great power conducts Russia, China, Um, This is what war looks like from their perspective. And it is absolutely horrifying. It is the stuff that we have only seen in movies and it has shocked the conscience. Well, I mean, you know, people, people saw some bits and pieces of it during, during world war II when uh, these things were, were filmed. I mean, I remember a fascinating detail about air, about air campaigns. Obviously this is not an air campaign, but during during uh, the Libyan uh, during you know our our efforts in Libya in 2011, um, which is that uh, we had achieved one of the reasons that we didn't want we shouldn't have wanted to have led by behind uh, led from behind as um, as as Obama said is that um, uh, our uh, our our capacities from the air in terms of precision are nearly supernatural at this point. Uh, about when we target something, we have a 90 to 97% chance of that bomb sometimes being dropped from thousands of feet in the air, hitting its target dead on the bullseye. Okay. 90 to 95, 97% accuracy in world war two, that number was like 25%, meaning we did an air campaign. The Germans didn't it, whatever. They had no idea where the bombs were going to fall. And that the amount of the amount of um, of ancillary damage, unnecessary damage and all of that, that was just part of the cost of war. Like you, you had no choice because you you couldn't 
you know, we didn't have precision guided munitions, you know, unless you were flying 50 feet above a target and could drop the bomb exactly, uh, you know, understanding how the parabola was going to work. You didn't know where it was going to fall. Uh, similarly, with ground campaigns that simply could not be precise. Well, the Russians are fighting like World War II. It's going to be street fighting like World War II. This, the images we already got from Kharkiv, where they bombed the, you know, where they where they blew up the Central City Hall or whatever. It didn't quite look like London during the Blitz, but I mean, it, it was close. Reasonably that was close. apparently one of the one of the few remaining precision munitions that Russia right. has, and it actually kind of missed. It was supposed to hit the building and hit the side of the street. Um, right. But they are using unguided munitions and and multiple launch rocket yeah. systems, and that's because that's what they have. They have grad launchers. Yeah, and what does that mean? That means and that means a terrifying amount of civilian casualties. And and that is a feature, not a bug for Russian military strategy because of course what they want to do is terrorize the Ukrainians into submission. That's one of the reasons they won't let them they won't let them leave, right? They won't let them um they're trying to hold them in place because they want to keep them captive and then like say you know, watch out because we'll just drop a bomb on your neighborhood if you don't behave and if you don't give in to us and, you know, we're going to break your spirit and break your soul. And that's where the hastiness and the cheapness, I think, are frightening but, in, so, terms so, of, in terms of Western resolve. Because, yeah, not to, not to monopolize okay. here, but yeah, what no, we're you're not, down, I'm monopolizing. what you, we're staring ahead. down the barrel of is um, Ukraine traded, uh, if we can just you know, read the tea leaves, you can't, Ukraine retreated into its cities, traded space for time. Russia has mismanaged the logistical effort here of a, of a, a blitz, so it's going to be a siege war. So they're surrounding cities to siege them. And that means everything that a siege means. In a medieval sense, starvation campaigns, uh, you know, uh, 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 artillery just leveling the outskirts of a city and moving inward. I mean, the sort of thing that we haven't, literally have not seen since 1945. It's another uh, reminder, too, of how the speech last night was a missed opportunity for Biden, because, uh, you know, if you go by the intelligence estimate that Noah cited and you're talking about a decade long conflict, uh, similar actually to the Russian invasion and occupation of Afghanistan in the 1980s, then there is an opportunity for Biden to basically resurrect the Reagan doctrine last night or even the Truman doctrine, if he wanted to look to one of his uh, fellow Democrats and say that it will be our policy to assist the Ukrainian people in the in resisting an armed invasion force. Now, he made some reference that we're going to be giving aid. It was one sentence. It was military aid was a toss. It was just briefly mentioned along with economic assistance and humanitarian aid. But there was a real opportunity for him to kind of lay out the stakes to the world, since this is really the biggest platform he has. The man does not give a primetime addresses from the Oval Office. He has given two addresses in primetime during his presidency. One was last year, his budget speech. The other was last night. And so here he has a huge platform. He could really lay out the geopolitical stakes, right? Think about some of the speeches that H.W. would give during uh, Saddam's invasion of Kuwait or all of the speeches that George W. gave in the post 9-11 era really explaining patiently what was going on, what his intentions were, what, what the uh, rival forces were, what, what we were contesting. Instead, again, it was rah-rah Ukraine. We love Ukraine. The ambassador's here. Let's wear blue and yellow. 
They're wonderful. Zelensky's wonderful. And, you know, meanwhile, the pitchers are just getting worse. And, and, and freedom the, and, the, and freedom always triumphs over tyranny. And Since that's not true. Freedom, right. That's not right. That's it's not true. Terrible, they need freedom needs force to triumph yeah. over tyranny. I mean, it's a terrible thing to say that it's inevitable that freedom will triumph over tyranny because it's like it's inevitable that Putin is going to end up worse off than he began. That's one of the things he's saying. Russia is going to be weaker and we're going to be stronger. Well, you know, if it takes 15 years for Putin to lose, that's going to be true. But A, he could be dead by then, number one. And number two, so could Biden. And number three, you know, you're talking about a world that is that will not be making the case that freedom is inevitable. Like, first of all, freedom isn't inevitable. It's a stupid ass thing to say. It's offensive because it makes freedom cheap, makes it seem as though like freedom is the natural political condition of places right. rather than an incredible exception, not only historically, but even on the planet Earth right now. It was very Obama like. Right. Free, the triumph of freedom and progress is inevitable. So America, we don't need to do much. Right. <laughs> Things that yeah. was that was eight years I sat through Obama. Don't worry. <laughs> don't worry, America. Yeah. It's all going to work out. Yeah. Now, and 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 look what happened. Yeah. To, look what to happened. His party. Right. I, I, I didn't also, literally said that, by the way, yeah. he was he was he yeah. like put the, the country on a couch and said something to the effect of it's yeah. going to be OK. Oh, yeah. He it. used it's the whisper voice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like we're suffering a mental right. breakdown. I told you that Speak was on our bingo card, the whisper voice. I mean, look, I, I, I think saying that, you know, comparing this speech to the Dunkirk speech and comparing Biden to Churchill is unfair. I mean, it's unfair because it's like comparing, you know, it's like comparing John Grisham to Shakespeare. I mean, John Grisham isn't Shakespeare and that's just the way it is. And saying, you know, you should have been Shakespeare. Is not fair, but if you think logistically about what what Churchill did in the Dunkirk speech, the greatest, probably the greatest speech, uh, you know, in in English aside from the Gettysburg Address, um, if you think about what 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 he did in that speech, that is a speech about a calamity. It's a speech about a disaster and a nightmare that ended up. Um, you know, being sort of turned around by the miraculous salvation of hundreds of thousands of lives, but but at the cost of 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 Britain's abandonment of the continent, uh, to which it would not return until for another four years, abandonment of the continent to the Nazis. Right. And the speech says, you know, look what we did and look how amazing it is. And then he says he turns around and says, we shouldn't be under any illusions this was a horrible setback and so much a horrible setback that England itself could cease to exist. In, the Nazis could come here and take us down and, and we will no longer be an independent nation and a great power on the earth, which is why we will fight them on the beaches and we will fight them on the, and we will never surrender. The real thing he was saying is, Prepare yourself for the possibility that this is a civilization-ending event that we have just been through. This, and rather this, than that being depressing and hard, like, you know, oh, we're going to have to have, we're going to have to convene, you know, grief counselors and, uh, you know, and, and, and ta how to talk to your children about Dunkirk and stuff like that. 
It ended up being the most important rallying moment of the 20th century. I think this is what that's a it's a good contrast because this is what got me about Biden last night. It was a speech using the language of courage and commitment in order to comfort. You know, it wasn't he talked about how strong and resolute we were, but the message was it's going to be okay. And if it's not really going to necessarily be okay, certainly not automatically, I'm not sure what we're doing. Right. And that's my point about the cheapness, I think, and why it's important to think about the cheapness, because when and if we see pictures of unimaginable horror coming out of Kiev and Kharkiv and, 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 and uh, Odessa and I, God knows where else, what about our resolve? I mean, I don't know what it, it's not happening to us. So we, you know, but I mean, people are going to say that this has got to stop. You know, I mean, look at those poor people. This has got, somehow this has got to stop. Let them let, you know, go to the table, try, try to figure out some way to get them to stop doing this. It's terrible. Granted, it's terrible. What he sees a monster. He's terrible, but we've got to stop rather That's- than, because in any way, freedom's inevitable anyway. So if we so if we let him have a lot of Ukraine, eventually he'll lose. Well, let's challenge our imaginations because that's what we all assumed would be the European response to a provocation in Europe. Because that's Europe's reflex to be pacifist and accommodationist. We haven't seen that. Instead, what we've seen is resolve, shock, horror, and uh, an effort to interdict this event. And part of what we've been talking about for this podcast is a very emotional response, a frenetic response in in Matt's words, and an unpredictable response. And an unpredictable response maybe isn't, let's go to the table and give them some concessions and sacrifice Ukrainian sovereignty. Maybe it's, John, as you said, our friend Brett Stevens, establish a humanitarian corridor in the country. Uh, yeah, uh, Yeah. There's a lack of a lack of understanding or I guess sort of a a perception that the nuclear deterrent, Moscow's nuclear deterrent, um, is an obstacle that we've invented in our heads. It's it's a it's a it's where Quislings retreat to to justify their own fears of engaging with a profound evil in our in our midst. Uh, So it's you know it's pusillanimous. Um, Let's sober up. We have a gun to our heads. We've known exactly what the cost of engaging with Moscow is for 70 years. And the notion here that we can just sacrifice that because what we're in a new period in history, I don't think anybody's anybody who's even advancing the notion here that we can engage inside Ukraine's borders in any meaningful way uh, has has tackled with the strategic realities that we're facing here. No, if you want to talk about hard bitten realism, cynical, dark, but you know, taking taking the measure of human nature and all its sinfulness and fallenness. What we're going to start hearing, if things go really really sour, is Ukraine is the quagmire. We need to prevent Putin from turning west. The battle in Ukraine needs to go on forever. He should be sunk in Ukraine. He should have to commit all of his resources and forces to Ukraine to bury Ukraine or to try to pacify Ukraine or whatever 
so that he doesn't have the capacity or the ability to turn toward the Baltics or toward NATO or, or toward the NATO border or something like that. That's the dark, the darkest version of the of the look, look cold eyed and clear eyed at what's going on here. Putin has made a mistake in that, you know, the Ukrainians are not going to roll up like the French and die. Um, uh, but uh, they they could be sort of like the. I don't know what you would call it. I mean, sort of like the, 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 the they will be the sacrificial lambs to prevent Putin's uh, territorial ambitions from getting any grander. And uh, and, you know, anyway, maybe that's a speech we'll get in a month right <laughs> after Biden, when Biden announced the first tranche or the second tranche of sanctions uh, the other week, you know, he said to the press, well, we'll we'll check back in a month. Yeah, <laughs> we'll yeah. see how it's going. You know, um, anyway, on the one uh, hand, no sense of urgency, right. and then all this frenetic activity. Okay, I want to I want to move on to the rest of the speech, but uh, let me first talk to you guys about, of course, the X chair. Uh, you've heard me extol it. It's got that uh, LMAX uh, technology uh, that uh, can uh, warm you up when you're cold and cool you down when you're warm. Four massage settings and that dynamic variable lumbar support for your lower back that makes it the luxury supercar of office chairs. You can't beat it. I keep telling you you can't beat it. If you don't have if you don't have it yet, what are you waiting for? Give it a shot. What are you crazy? Give it a shot. Uh call um you can go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair commentary.com or call 18444x chair for $100 off your order. That's risk free for 30 days. Don't like it, send it back, okay? 30-day guarantee, complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. You'll, your back will never be happy in any other chair again. Give it a shot, xchaircommentary.com. Okay, so I went into some of the rest of the speech. Uh, but the joke, of course, is that, um, uh, you know, for uh, there's been a, a line of punditry over the course of the last six weeks among uh, Democrats and liberals that... Um, Biden had a much better first year than people realize and that the public doesn't really understand, you know, six million new jobs and, you know, growth of 5.7 percent and, you know, infrastructure bill and the covid relief package that did so much and and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, really, when you look at the totality of it, it's really kind of amazing what he did. And he should really highlight that in the speech. And he did. And it sounded, I'm trying to be fair here because I'm not saying it sounded crazy. And you could see that his purpose in the speech was to speak to suburban, uncommitted voters who didn't like Trump, voted for him, but are very soft to try to rally them behind some stuff that they might support, including liking the cops, right? Which was the big twist, the sister soldier twist in the speech is we shouldn't be for defunding the police. We should fund the police. Um, but talking about the last year as though uh, it's been good. Granted, he doesn't want to talk about how it's been bad. And I'm, it's, a, it's a hard road to hoe. Uh, but it did sound delusional. I think it sounded delusional. Christine, again, if we could pull ourselves out from not being us. Would it seem delusional? This is where I think both the uh, 
this is to, to Abe's cheapness point, it seemed desperate, actually. The domestic policy portion of the speech seemed desperate, and it's weird because that's the part they clearly have, have invested the most time and energy in. Uh, from the, from, from the, nobody believes him when he says we should fund the police. What does that even mean? He's like, let's train them better. It's just, it's empty words. He didn't, again, because he didn't talk about crime. He didn't talk about violent crime. I mean, everyone who was trying to sort of praise him was saying, oh, look, the Democrats are back to the 1990s when they were tough on crime. I'm like, no, they're not. He's just signaling that he's against the more, most extreme wing of his own party, who was very angry about that message. I mean, Cory Bush went on Twitter immediately and started, you know, finger wagging. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez did some of the same thing. In a way, it was like he was trying to massage the far left and Ron Klain immediately hopped on to a crazy far left Twitter conversation with like, you know, Occupy Democrats to, to try to smooth things over there. He was trying to have it both ways domestically, but he needs there's no real message. As Noah said, with inflation, he's going to spend more money to stop inflation. There aren't specifics to what Matt said about foreign policy. What are we actually going to do? He's just throwing words out there. And that's, I think, why the gaffes are more noticeable when he does them. And the very final line, go get him. What the hell does that mean? I mean, I still don't know if anyone can enlighten me. I'd appreciate it. I just felt it was a lot of empty rhetoric for a speech that is supposed to be, as we've been saying, a signature moment, especially for a president who doesn't make himself that available for these kinds of moments. Can we talk a little bit about inflation? Because yes, I mean, please. the Russia-Ukraine <laughs> issue is foremost on our minds, but it's not foremost on American minds. Uh, the chief concern so rapidly supplanting, if not already supplanted, uh, COVID is inflation. And Joe Biden addressed inflation in two very specific ways that are incredibly insulting. The first is he picked out uh, drug prices, particularly insulin, to advocate for price controls. So let's set a, uh, you know, an arbitrary uh, rate for insulin, 35 bucks. That's all you're going to pay for it. And also we need to repatriate all this industry um, so, you know, we'll we'll provide uh, incentives in the form of protectionism to make more goods at home, which will cost more because labor costs more at home. So his uh, objective here is to advocate in one one half of the problem. Uh, Richard Nixon's first term agenda as though as though we didn't do this already and it was an abject failure. The second, as Matt said earlier on, was to articulate all the constituent parts of Build Back Better. He's talking about Medicare, uh, Medicare and making uh, letting them negotiate prices and uh, uh, nursing homes and making pre-K more affordable and pass the PRO Act and all the stuff that was in Build Back Better. And if you're Joe Manchin, you have to be absolutely insulted at the abject contempt that you've been treated. You were treated to last night. He killed Build Back Better over inflation. And Joe Biden's response to Joe Manchin's concerns and the concerns of the country is more Build Back Better. Just beat on that cowbell until it collapses in your hand. I can't imagine that anybody in that chamber who takes this problem seriously was satisfied by that. And the country shouldn't be. Well, we don't talk about build back better. We talk about build a better America. And that, Noah, is really going to improve the chances of the legislation, or as Biden kept referring to it, my plan not my build back better plan, which he spent the last year talking about, but just my plan of passing um, the, the inflation part. Look, how do we bring down prices? Uh, well, it, we bring down prices through competition. Or if you're talking about the type of macroeconomic inflation, well, you have to kind of, you have to constrict the money supply. Right. And this is why I thought <clears throat> some of the comparisons of Biden to Ronald Reagan in his address in 1982, 
were a little bit overstated. I mean, there was um, my, my friend Steve Hayward had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal yesterday saying, you know, can uh, Biden turn things around because Reagan did? Uh, well, uh, it wasn't so much Reagan turning things around. It was conditions in the country turned around over the course of Reagan's first term as a result of Reagan's policies, specifically one policy, which is that Reagan resisted all of the pressure to tell Paul Volcker, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, to ease up on the interest rate hikes. Reagan's, I think one of Reagan's most important decisions was in keeping Jimmy Carter's Federal Reserve chair, Paul Volcker, and letting Volcker wring inflation out of the economy. Because the one way we know to get rid of inflation is through a long and harsh recession. And Reagan did that. It took a lot of courage. And Reagan must have intuited that if he did it enough, that by the time of his reelection, things would turn around. It would be morning in America, as indeed it turned out to be. Biden gave no sign whatsoever. I mean, that, the intellectual... that, he is, that he has any of the understanding or the will to uh, to do something um uh, similar to, to Reagan. The intellectual architecture for such a thing is just gone. I, who is the architect of shock therapy in Bolivia? Jeff Sachs. Jeff Sachs is a socialist now. He might as well be a Bolshevik. I mean, yeah. With all just, due respect. Yeah. With all continue. due respect to Steve Hayward, uh, and and I, I, I admire Steve Hayward, um, that, that op-ed was bizarre because I remember vividly, so I was 21 years old, in 1982, and the the op-ed made the claim that Reagan told people to be patient, kind of, and that the losses, uh, the midterm losses in 1982 really weren't so bad, and Kevin Phillips said they really weren't so bad. That was not the way people read it in November of 1982. I'm sorry. I mean, I was there, and... Um, they lost 20 Republicans lost 26 seats in the House. So the reason that it wasn't more is that it couldn't pra- practically couldn't have been more. I mean, Democrat majority in the House was already huge uh, after, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, the 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 clawback of Democratic control of the House really only started in earnest in the late 1980s. They lost every seat they could possibly have lost. It was bad. And yeah. And what happened was that things really changed. It wasn't just a, you know, it wasn't just rhetoric. Nobody, nobody listened to the State of the Union in 1982 and said, he's right, I'm really going to hold on tight here because like, you know, unemployment was, it was a 10%. I mean, this was no joke. It was a terrible, terrible circumstance. Biden would be lucky in some sense to be in Reagan's. Biden's lucky to be in the position he is in now and not the position that Reagan was in. But as it turned out, historically, Help was on the way in, in, in the form of a gigantic turnaround of the economy that was made possible by the slaughtering of inflation. And what you heard here was a continuance of inflation. Like when he says we're going to spend our way out of inflation, it's basically what he said. He said we're going to spend our way out of inflation. And 17 Nobel Prize laureates think that's a good idea. Well, what about the other 40 economic Nobel Prize laureates? Do they think that's a good idea? Um, they call economists call this increasing the productive capacity of our economy. Really? Is that what they call it? That's not how you beat inflation is by increasing the productive capacity of our economy. 
You defeat inflation by choking off the causes of its spiraling effects. And the problem that he faces is there is no, particularly given what's about to happen, the disruptions in the global economy by the fact that there's a major ground war in Europe, he has very little power to handle that. And then he says, look, if it weren't for inflation, people would be feeling the improvement in the economy. That's like saying, you know, if it weren't, if it weren't for cancer, if it weren't for your cancer, you'd be feeling pretty good. Like inflation is what makes people feel or not feel. Yeah. So you're, so you're, so you get a 5% increase in your salary and, and the, and the consumer prices go up 7%. You're worse off than you were. It's better that you got the 5% raise. Don't get me wrong. So that you can pay back some of the inflationary spiral. I mean, so it's interesting because that's why I say it has delusional quality to it. We're going to cap prices. We're going to do a lot more government spending. And we're going to we're going to sort of like uh, improve the productive quality of our economy. Lower costs, not your wages. Yeah, And also pass the Equality Act and pass the John Lewis Act and pass H.R. one, which they can't pass. That was that was kind of the bizarre yeah. thing. That's they the tried worst part to pass of, them. Yeah. They can't. They can't. That's the worst it, part so. about it is he's having this argument that has been definitively settled. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you move? It's an interesting thing because I guess this gets the question of is it him or is it his people? And I noted that Ron Klain, his chief of staff, had some kind of a kind of internet meetup last night to discuss the State of the Union, like some kind of yeah, Zoom, but with like a bunch of far left groups. Yeah. But I mean, by the way, with crazy people oh yes not i'm not talking about josh marshall and chris hayes and people like that i'm talking about occupied democrats Mm -hmm. and these two brothers who call themselves the midas touch these are these are grifter crazy people this is as though you know uh it is very a close analogy like if mark meadows you know had a session after the state of the union with who who would be a good uh i'm, tr- I'm trying to think of who would be my, mike lindell diamond and sil- I mean, diamond there, and there are sil- so many options diamond it's and well, he one. would have done diamond and sil- i mean that's yeah, the that's thing true. like he is doing what trump what trump did mary yeah. Catherine ham actually listened to that she came away with one really good observation god bless yeah. her for taking that bullet for everybody yeah. um but she so somebody asked you know how are you going to communicate to claim how are you going to communicate um, you know, this what your what Biden said tonight in the Biden agenda to, you know, average households. And he joked, well, I'm doing I'm on Twitter doing signal right now. Right. And she, you know, that was a joke, obviously. But it was reflective of Ron Klain's very online uh, attachment to political realities. Well, I mean, if the whole point here is staving off catastrophe by clawing back some of the wine moms, what is Ron Klain doing talking to Midas Touch? Well, you and, know, and he should be yeah. in he should be in Shaker Heights at a synagogue in a mask, making sure those people go to vote. 
Well, and he's not, if he's trying to win back the wine moms, the, his enablers in the media aren't helping either. The wine moms care about inflation, about crime and about schools. And those things weren't really addressed in this speech. And they, you know, I was watching a little bit of the CNN analysis afterwards and Abby Phillips had this remarkably obtuse remark about so-called parents' rights. I'm like, right there. That's why you're not getting the wine moms voting yeah. for you. So-called parents' rights? I mean, Who says that? End- we should we should just briefly mention uh, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds' Republican response because I do think when you compare the two speeches, it's clear that Republicans have a much better sense of where the electorate is than this White House. I mean, she talked about inflation. She talked about schools. To Christine's point, she spent a lot of time on parents, right? And that's yeah. exactly she talked about the border and she talked about crime. Those are the issues. When Biden talked about crime, he spent the one he did the one gesture that, no, we're going to fund the police. And then he moved on to gun control. Yeah, that's not going to win you any new votes. I'm sorry. And it does raise this question that you're saying, John, which is what is the point? Is it it's almost as though they know what's going to happen and they don't care. (laughs) <laughs> which, which is bizarre. It's, 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 it's bizarre to me because even in 2010, you could see, okay, we're going to get Obamacare. We are going to establish the universal entitlement to health care for the first time in the history of the American welfare state. And you know what? If we lose the Congress as a result, so be it. Because they were right. It will still be there 12 years right. later, right? Yeah. You establish an entitlement. It's not going to go away. Here, I don't, I don't get it because, uh, you know, we're proud of the infrastructure bill. We're going to have all the charging stations uh, and um, we can do these things. It's an infrastructure are, decade. It's we're going to have the That's infrastructure right. decade. It's an infrastructure decade. What, and you know, we love that Ukraine. Is so inspiring. Yeah, we love Ukraine, uh, you know, and we're with you, yeah. Ukraine. But let's not get into the details. And, uh, and then by, oh, pass the Equality Act. I mean, not know? to interrupt, but, but I even, think- the, even the invocation of infrastructure week. Yeah, which is a online joke among people who devour politics for a living on a daily basis is so hopelessly out of touch. Yeah. But when you say five year old online joke. Yeah. When you say what's the point and when, you know, John speaks to this sort of delusional quality to Biden's discussion of inflation and 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 his response to it. Um, I think what they're thinking, and I think what the point is, and there, there's, there have been some sort of leaks on sh- strategy to this effect, <clears throat> is that the real problems are going to take care of themselves via time, right? Everything that we're worried about, including inflation, probably including Putin, is going to take care of itself. It's, gonna, it's going to resolve because everything resolves in time. And in the meantime, we're going to push, push, push for these big, crazy, already defeated ideas. And we'll get some of them through already. And that will coincide with times having reconciled all our other problems. And then we'll be sitting pretty. And it's ridiculous. I mean, I don't know. I I just think in the end, it's very hard to know what the galvanizing or, or organizing principle is inside a White House unless you lay it at the president's feet and say that basically what's happening is what the president wants to have happen. Now, some of the time that was not true of Trump. I mean, stylistically was of course true of Trump, but a lot of policy pursued by the Trump administration wasn't exactly Trump's policy. 
uh, it was mostly true of Obama, but sometimes not. And we really don't know about Biden. But if you just say you treat Biden, be an, be don't be an Oxfordian like Biden is by there. There is a Shakespeare and the Shakespeare is Biden because saying that there's somebody else who is crafting policy and being his brain and all of that. There's no point because we'll never get to the bottom of it. This is Biden and this is Biden. Biden is a short-sighted, foolish policymaker. He has been his entire career. And, you know, a couple of times he was out in front on certain things, including crime, for which he then later had to apologize. And this is his vision. His vision is, um, I did great. Things are good. How do, you know, uh, it's fantastic. I'm in the White House. I get to go back home to Delaware every week. I understand people are feeling inflation, so we'll spend our way out of it. And you know what else? We'll cure cancer. Don't forget the four things he ended the speech with. We're curing the opioid epidemic. We're helping our veterans, which fine. I mean, like everybody is helping veterans, but fine. Uh, there was a something I can't even remember. And we're going to end cancer as we know it. Note on the cancer really know, thing, because that the, phrase is fascinating, by the way, because what do you mean end cancer as we know it? Like, <laughs> is there some other kind of cancer that we don't know? Or does this mean cancer will end cancer as far as we as far as we can? But then there may be other cancers we don't know about yet. Or so I, I can't the quite revivification the of the cancer moonshot. Uh, so cancer death rate it, it, in the fine print of this thing, it's like, let's reduce cancer death rates by half uh, by 2050 which is kind of reasonable because cancer death rates have been falling consistently every year since 1991. So it's possible. But the um, the moonshot uh, was familiar because Barack Obama said something very similar in a State of the Union address. You know, I had to I had to look this up because this was part of Joe Biden's unity package. This is his unity message. And this is the cancer thing is just one part of the unity message. And uh, Barack Obama introduced a similar unity message in his State of the Union address in 2016 a year we all remember for its ubiquitous displays of national unity. Right. And just uh, to, to mention, John, the third thing was mental health. Oh, mental so health. I'm sorry. So yes. it's the opioid yes. crisis, the veterans, mental health and cancer. Right. And, you know, and puppies and ponies and apple pie. Yeah. Well, if and, he cared about, if he cared about teenage mental health, he would have, he would have, uh, he would have ordered the removal of masking a year ago. On the of grounds, course. yeah, uh, right. for school masking in particular, on the sure. grounds that uh, Which COVID, my kids COVID... are still wearing. By the way, I I'm going to harp right. on it again. My kids are wearing masks harp all on day it, today. Harp on it. <laughs> harp on it. Teenage mental health is in a crisis because of COVID, and because we treated teenagers as though they were diseased when they are not. Well, and, and because turning around Biden and saying, yeah, go ahead. And and because the Democratic Party is entirely beholden to the donations given to it by the teachers unions and manipulated by those teachers unions when it comes to setting public health policy, as they were under this entire right. past year of Biden's presidency. Right. Anyway, so um, I, I think basically it's fair to say this speech was a failure. Uh, most <laughs> most state of the unions are not great successes. I mean, you can mention sort of moments in states of the union that have sort of a historical resonance. Uh, I think the biggest one in historical terms was Reagan's announcement of the of of, of the of the strategic defense initiative, um, which you know basically ended up being the 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 final accelerant to end the Cold War. 
um, was largely derided and made fun of. That was the, you know, that was sort of the conclusion of the 1983 or 1984. And uh, the Axis of Evil speech in 02, too. That was a right. The Axis of Evil. Right. But I mean, mostly they're mostly they're 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 ponderous and pedestrian. But I think it is fair to say that Abe's cheapness point is important because he had a real opportunity here. He actually had an opportunity to reset and refocus his presidency in a way that would not have required him, by the way, to abandon or or say he had done wrong the first year. 45 minutes of the speech could have been about Afghanistan and our position in the world, and then he could have ended it. Reagan's first day of the union was 44 minutes long. He didn't have to deliver the standard issue, crapola, you know, laundry list, state of the union, uh, paying back democratic constituencies. He could have gone thematic and direct and not played that game. And that's him because basically he's an unimaginative, thuddingly unimaginative politician facing an incredibly difficult political uh, environment. And he has absolutely no idea what to do about it. Okay. Well, (laughs) uh, Go to commentary.org slash live podcast if you want to join us on April 6th for our live podcast in Palm Beach, South Floridians. This is your time. Commentary.org slash live podcast will be there. We'll have special guests. You may get a, you know, you may get a soda. You may get a canapé. Who knows? Meet people. Get together with old friends. No masks. No nothing. Socializing. Thrilling commentary.org slash live podcast matt continetti thank you for joining us everybody go to amazon and pre-order the right matt continetti's thrilling history of the conservative uh, of of the american conservative movement over the last hundred years and for abe christina noam john potwaritz keep the candle burning